Well, we got into Peter barely last week, first seven verses of First Peter, and I want to go back there today. Someone told me, I knew that I had gone through Peter sometime in the past. I didn't realize it was just before Passover last year uh, that we went through this book at that time. But it is very pertinent to the Passover season, and I don't think it hurts if we go back and review this. We need to review the scriptures about Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread as we're coming up on it anyway and be thinking about these things. <clears throat> so I want to go back here and uh, pick up the story where we left it off and go on. <coughs> As a brief recap, remember he was writing to the strangers of Israel scattered, and we are a scattered church today that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, that he knew ahead of time what type of people he would call, and he has called indeed the weak and the base of the world, that we might confound the mighty and the noble someday. Uh, doesn't mean we should be lifted up in vanity and ego and pride, uh, because what were we that God called us? Nothing. There's been a fellow calling <clears throat> my house all this past week while I was gone, Started out fairly friendly, uh, but he got more angry as the week went on that I wouldn't call him back. I wasn't home, of course. Uh, I could have gotten his number through my wife, but uh, frankly, I didn't really care that much. He accused me of not having, on the answering machine, of not having the guts to talk to him. I have plenty of guts. In fact, I gained a little weight on this trip, but... Uh, <clears throat> It's not a matter of lack of guts to call him, it's lack of desire. When I see someone who is angry and bitter and full of wrath and hatred and malice and wanting to accuse, uh, I'm not really that interested in talking to them. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now, he did say on there that we needed to be humbled and I would agree with that, and I've been preaching that, that the church was lifted up in pride, vanity, spiritual ego, and that we certainly need to be humbling ourselves before God and ultimately humbling ourselves before men as well. So he got us there. I'll agree with that. Of course, see, there's a twist on that, but certainly we need to be humbled, even though God did call us, that doesn't make us of ourselves special. The only thing that makes us special is God's Spirit in us, if we, who do have it, flowing through us. And to be regarded as special in that sense is a good thing. I want to be special to God. I want to be special to you, and I want you to be special to me, and I want us all to be special to each other and to God. Not because we as human beings are special in ourselves, because we simply aren't. But God, through us, can make us very special. And Peter is going to get to that here in a little bit. He talks about us being sanctified and set apart, and that we do have a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We got down to him speaking of the last times in verse 5, which we are indeed in now, more so than then, and a discussion at the end of that sermon about trials, heaviness, and temptation, and difficulty in life that would face the Christian. And we certainly, 
as an overall greater church of God, and we, even as a group, suffer those things, because that is what tries and tests and makes us what we ought to be. When God leaves us alone, as indeed he did in Worldwide for a long time, what did we do? We got softer, we got weaker, we got more spiritually proud and vain, uh, and eventually he had to react to straighten us up, and that's what he's doing. Some of us in the greater church of God will respond to that and will straighten out the feeble knees and the crooked foot and will make straight paths to walk in. Others will go on and not heed, and they will go into tribulation because God will try and test and put as much fire on us, as much pressure as need be to get us where he wants us to be. So when someone says, you need to be humbled, I take that seriously. We all need to be very, very humble before God and before man. Let's go on picking it up then in verse 8 after him telling us about the trial of our faith. Speaking of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Generally, we have to meet someone and know them, be around them before we learn to love them. Well, we have never seen Jesus Christ. We have read his word. We have seen what he has done in creating the, wor the earth and the universe under the auspices of his Father. And therefore, we have come to love him for what he's done, even though we didn't see it all. <clears throat> In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We have a hope and a joy for the future in knowing him. That's what faith is all about. The evidence of things not seen. We've never seen him, and yet we believe that he can give us and bring us salvation. Receiving the result or the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. We look forward to that. God made this life about a thousand years, then he shortened it to around 500, then 250, and he finally shortened it to about 70 years. I think that he began to realize, maybe he did all along, but at some point he realized about 70 years is all we needed down here. And indeed, it might be just about all we can take. By strength, we might live to 75, 80, 85, 90, or, or whatever, but those last 10, 15 years usually aren't real wonderful years either because of aches and pains and bad health and bad minds and bad eyes and ears and, you know, Everything just sort of goes. And life becomes difficult and not nearly as much fun as it is earlier. About 70 years, roughly, is all we need down here, it appears, to get enough of the way life is as a human being and to look forward to the kind of life that is always always peaceful and happy and there is always plenty there is not the stress and the worry that we have in this end time age and we look forward to that of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come to us 
we need to realize that even though they wrote incredible sections of the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets so-called, and all the prophets of the Bible, Abraham, Moses, David, didn't understand really what it was all about. And they questioned, they wondered, why hasn't God told me this, they thought. Why don't I know what all is ahead? But they didn't. They wrote about salvation. Didn't we read a lot in Isaiah about salvation and the coming world tomorrow? And yet, even though God inspired him to write those words, Isaiah did not have the understanding and the knowledge that you and I have. He wrote words he didn't know. What about Daniel? He was even told, you're not going to understand, Daniel, what you yourself are writing. It's sealed up until the end. So the man wrote words that he had no clue what meant. But they were words that God wanted written down, so he used him to do it then for his purposes. They didn't understand the new covenant, the grace that has come to us. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, Peter witnessed everything that Jesus Christ went through. The prophets wrote about it, but never understood what it was all about. All they, they, they wrote down, what's, well, for example, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, 23, things David and Isaiah wrote about a coming Savior, and they didn't really realize what it was they were talking about. And yet here today we know. Did you ever stop to think you know more than Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and those people knew? We have more knowledge, more understanding today than they ever had. Now, we don't want to mention ourselves in the same breath as those dignitaries from old because their exploits and their faithfulness and so on is written in the Bible as an example for us. And we look at ourselves and say, well, we're not like them. And indeed, we have a long way to go and we're told to turn isn't it interesting that we understand more than they did, and yet we are told to look to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as an example of what we ought to do. We understand more than they did, and yet we need to look to them as an example of how to live. Because they were faithful to what they understood and knew. In other words, they were not hypocritical whatsoever. They lived their religion. And even though we have a lot of understanding, we didn't live it very well, so God did to us what he did to us. Now we need to be learning not just to understand it or know it, but to live it. Verse 12, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported to you, by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels have difficulty grasping salvation for mankind. I mean, they're at the throne of God. They go back and forth there. 
they see what God has created down here, and they look at us, I guess, on this earth and the way we are, and they say, I don't understand. I, I don't quite get it. That God is going to put them above us? That they are going to be our rulers someday? How can this be? Look, look down at the world, they might say. And what do you see down there? Anger, fighting, adultery, murder, stealing, lying, chicanery of every imaginable brand or stripe. They see confusing, polluted atmosphere, confusing living, polluted atmosphere, polluted seas, polluted land. We have made an absolute mess of what God created beautiful. And to them, they must say, how does this work? God created them less than us, and they've made such a horrible mess. We're down there trying to guard them, help them, protect them in some cases if we come under God's Spirit. But look at the church. And they say, these are going to be the 144,000 that John wrote about back there? They don't fully grasp it, even as we see through a glass darkly, as Paul said. But Peter is trying to tell us that this is such a great event, such an incredible salvation that we have ahead of us, that the prophets wanted to see it, the angels don't quite understand it, but it's there for us anyway. But this is something God has designed for you and me. Is that something we should take for granted or not fully grasp? Or is this something we ought to be very alive and alert to? That here is an opportunity to have forever basically what every human being who's ever lived on the earth wanted but rarely achieved. Peace, security, happiness, health, wealth, and all the good things that we think we might want is offered to us and on a, an eternal basis. Remember when you were growing up, the things you dreamed about and what you would have and the kind of mate you would have and how many children you would have and how good they'd be and what kind of house you might have and what kind of job you would want, what kind of lifestyle you would like to live. And this is far beyond any of the fantasies you might have had. And yet it's so easy for us to take it for granted, perhaps partly because we can't see it. If you could see the house on the hill on the other side of the tracks, the, the good side of the tracks, and you could see the lifestyle that those who were the leaders in your town had, and that might be what you desired, you had something there that you could look at and say, that's what I want. Here we have pictures that are drawn for us, word pictures, and we have to use our imagination. And it's easy to take for granted the things that God has set ahead for us. But he's saying, look, the angels, the prophets, inquired of this and didn't get it. And yet it's offered to you. All right, here then is what he says we should do as a result 
of having this knowledge. Wherefore, or as a result of, in verse 13, or because you understand what is ahead, here's what you should do. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, take this seriously. Be sober about it. Still be flippant. Don't slide along. Be very sober. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, there has to be a transformation. The way we used to think has to go away. We have to come to have a new approach to life. The old approach we had to life for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it was before we were called, has to go away. You cannot look at life the way you used to. You cannot look at things. You cannot look at the world. You can't look at anything the way you used to, or, to put it a different way, the way the world does look at things. If you think like the world thinks, you do not think the way God thinks. So if you find yourself enjoying the way the world thinks or wanting to think like the world thinks, you're not thinking right. The things they are thinking is leading them into tribulation and death and the punishment of God, just like at Sodom and Gomorrah, just like at Noah's flood. Actually, God's flood, but it was in Noah's day. We call it Noah's flood, I guess, for identification purposes. We cannot fashion ourselves. You know, you're supposed to mold and make yourself, to fashion yourself. What do they call it when people design clothing? Fashion. They fashion things to fit or not fit the human body, depending on what they are. And we are to fashion ourselves. You are not supposed to live life the way you used to, or the way you are, or the way you were taught, you're supposed to change yourself. When you fashion clothes, you design them. You sew them to a certain fit, a certain way. We're not to remain the way we were. We're to be different as obedient children, not forming and fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts and ignorance. The world is ignorant. The world is going on doing whatever they See, feel, touch, taste, whatever looks good, feels good, whatever they want to do, they just sort of do. And look at the mess. Verse 15, but as he which has called you is holy, you can't get any holier than Jesus Christ and the Father, we're to be just like them. We are to be holy. Now the strange thing is, that if we actually do that, if we start fashioning ourselves to be holy, what are we going to do? We're going to change ourselves away from what everyone else is doing. And when you do that, what are they going to think of you? They'll think you're odd. They'll think you're strange. They'll think you're different. And they won't like you. 
and the church won't like you. The former people who were friends in the church won't like you either because most of the church is not trying to become holy as God is holy. <laughs> they are mostly trying to keep the feast, keep Sabbath service, and be in the kingdom of God, pretty much as they are. We are supposed to act like God. And we fall very far short of it, but if we begin to move in that direction, people are not going to like us. They're going to think we're going to try to be exclusive. Well, we need to be exclusive from this world, don't we? Don't we need to be different? Don't we want the world to exclude us? If they exclude us, then we have become excluded or exclusive. That's okay. If it is fashioning us in the character of God. Nothing wrong with being exclusive that way. And if we do that, we'll be in a very exclusive club. Because out of over six billion people on the earth, there are only a few tens of thousands who are even trying to really follow this book the way it's written. And most of them are drifting along. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conduct. That is a tall order. That is a high standard. To be holy in everything we do. Because it is written, Be you holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11. Be holy, for he is holy. Be like him. Be just like God. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We should be living in daily fear. Not fear of this world and what it may be about to do, but in fear of God and fear of falling short of looking and acting like God. When we get up in the morning, there should be a certain amount of fear in our mind and our emotions. Fear that we will not go through that day acting and talking as God would act and talk. Fearing that we might lie. Fearing that we might put somebody down in order to lift ourselves up. Vanity, in other words. Fear that we might do something wrong that is ungodly, fear that we might lie, fear that we might steal, fear that we might be spiritually lazy, fear that we might show spiritual pride, fear that we won't be humble in our reactions, and often we're not. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conduct received by tradition from your fathers, aren't we pretty much like our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers? It's sort of a family, isn't it? 
were sort of like they were. He says, don't be that way. Change. Be different. Romans says to be transformed. When you transform something, what do you do? You change it. We weren't redeemed with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He set the perfect example that we should follow in his steps and not have any spot, any blemish in us, but to become spiritually mature and correct in everything that we do. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. His purpose was set way back, but in these last times, Peter put it, in his day, he came and died, lived and died and was resurrected for us. That's been almost 2,000 years ago now, or very near it. And we're almost at the time when he's coming back. I think... Evolution is disproved by us. You would think that if evolution worked, mankind would be getting better and better instead of worse and worse. <laughs> of course, evolution takes millions and billions of years, so if you only take a couple thousand years, that wouldn't count on their scale, I guess. But we're not getting better, are we? Is the world getting to be a better place? I remember going to Europe and the overseas back in the 60s. And now when I travel in the, on the earth, I find things that have changed. Places that I would have felt safe then, I do not feel at all safe today. Because mankind as a whole is getting worse and worse. There is more crime. There is more, or lack of, there's less care for human life, less value placed on human life, more value placed on your tennis shoes than on you. We don't just evolve. It takes work. Some of you ladies fashion garments. You make clothing. Does it just sort of happen? You picture this in your mind and you say, let there be clothes. doesn't happen, does it? You have to cut it out. You have to sew it. You have to make it. It takes work. It takes time. It takes energy. And it takes time, work, and energy for us to become like God. It doesn't happen automatically by any means. We need to realize that any redemption, any sanctification, any opportunity we have comes through Jesus Christ. We're nearing the Passover. And we need to be thinking about him and what he was willing to give up that he might share his life with us. That should be a very primary thing in our minds as this Passover season comes upon us. That it's by his precious blood that we can be redeemed from this world in the way that it is so that we're not like it. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, 
that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. See, the purpose of obedience, he's telling us in this verse, the purpose of obedience to a code, God's word, is for the purpose of learning to love. God's law is love. If we keep his law, we will come to have love. See, the purpose isn't for God just to have made a bunch of rules to follow so that he could judge how well you followed the rule. No, the purpose of those rules he had is that we might come to love one another and with a pure heart fervently. Is that the way we love? Or do we still put each other down? Do we make catty remarks about one another? Do we talk behind each other's back and stab each other in the back and put on one face while we think something entirely different? Where is the pure love that the Spirit of God should lead us to have? Unfeigned love. Real outgoing concern for each and every one. No, if we can tell stories to make somebody else look bad, then I guess somehow we translate to thinking that makes us look good. But it doesn't. For someone with spiritual understanding, it makes us look bad, even though we think we're pulling ourselves up above someone else. Can't do that. So we have to purify ourselves for the purpose of coming to truly love one another. Christ really did not say, I'll know you, or men will know you, by how well you keep a bunch of commands. It's how much you love one another. See, the purpose of the law is to bring love. That's why it's the most important thing. Faith and hope we won't need someday. Once Christ returns, once we become spirit beings, if Indeed, we're chosen to be one of them. We won't need faith. That's in something you can't see. But when you're there and it's already happened, what do you need faith in? What do you need hope? Or why do you need hope when you've already received what you were hoping for? There come, there'll come a time when faith and hope are not needed at all. But there will always need to be love. It's the greatest of the three. Why do we fight and quarrel among ourselves? Because we want our way. Rather than giving in and maybe doing it someone else's way. Where is true humility? Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. When we were born on this earth as squalling babies, we were born or we were first begotten and then later born, of corruptible seed. And the beginning was the beginning of the end. As soon as we were born, it was written that we would die. That's where we were headed. 
in whatever period of time we might live on this earth, then we would die. But now we have been begotten of incorruptible seed. We find that people are very proud of their forefathers, proud of their parents, proud of their grandparents in some cases, proud of their name as a human being, whatever that name might be. You'll find that they're very proud of it. They're proud of their race, whether it be an Irishman or an Italian or a German or a Brit or whatever it might be that they are. They're very proud of their heritage, very proud of their family line. They'll go back. People say, oh, I'm, I'm kin by such and such and such 14th cousin to King Leopold, whatever. Proud of our heritage. Why? What's so important about being born of corruptible seed? You see, Paul had come to recognize the difference when he said, being a Benjamite of the tribe of Israel, one of the tribes of Israel, being all that he was and all of his heritage, he counted as what? Yeah, that stuff. Done. He was no longer proud of being a Benjamite. He was no longer proud of being an Israelite. He was thankful for being a child of God and a spiritual Jew. That's what he was thankful for. But sometimes it's such a matter of family pride with us. But what does he say? We're born or begotten of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. Then what's there to be proud of? But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. We're here to seek something eternal. This is a temporary life. That's why he told us to be willing to give up anything, lands, homes, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and so on. Why Christ said when he said, your mother and your brothers want to see you, and he said, no, these are my brothers, these are my sisters. This is our family here. We should be closer to one another than to blood relatives. We need to work on that. Of course, blood relatives fight too, don't they? <laughs> but we should come to have the regard for the family of God deeper than the feelings for blood family. Because this is the family of God that he has called us to be a part of. Chapter 2, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envyings and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. What comes natural to us? Malice, jealousy, guile, hypocrisy, envying. That's what comes natural. Evil speakings about one another, to one another, 
That comes natural. That's carnal. That's fleshly. When I see someone who is bitter and angry, I can understand how people over the split up of worldwide might have become bitter and angry, frustrated with wrongs both true and alleged that were there, with the failings of mankind, with the failings of the ministry. I can read Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi 1. I can understand what was wrong with me. I can understand what was wrong with all of us. But does that mean that I should become bitter and full of hatred and miserable uh, malice toward all those people? And when I see someone that is like that, and I've had one trying to get hold of me and bend my ear and tell me what a wretch I am, I know what a wretch I am. And sometimes people need to tell me, I guess, and that's okay. My wife even tells me. So if I get it at home, I guess if someone calls me and wants to tell me the same thing, it's okay too. We should be telling each other our faults and how to overcome. I mean in love. And I don't mean to be putting my wife down when I say I get it at home because she knows me and she sees a lot of things I need to change. And she's not afraid to tell me. She says, after all, no one else will. <laughs> so she feels like it's her duty. And indeed, sometimes it is. doesn't mean I always like it, but sometimes I need it, just as we all do. But try to correct somebody and see how far you get. I've said this before. I mean, just on something simple. And you'll find that we all have so much pride left and we are so far from humbled that we're not willing to be told anything about the way we are. I mean just on some simple things that might be our habits or our way of doing things or our life. We're not willing to take instruction or guidance from someone else. We'll pass it off. We'll ridicule it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to be told we're less than what we think we are, whatever that might be. But he said, be like newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the word. Are there better ways of doing things in the way you have been accustomed to doing them? Babies have inquiring minds, don't they? I think that's what he's getting at here. Babies are in a whole new world. And as they grow up, they're interested in this, they're interested in that, and don't they get into a lot of things when they're little bitty things? Because they want to know what makes this work and how that is and what that feels like, what's that taste like. What the, I mean, they'll pick up anything on the floor or the ground, poke it in their mouth. They don't know what that tastes like. Ooh, that's what that tastes like. But they'll try it because they have inquiring minds. They're seeking to know And we need to be the same way, seeking to know, seeking to find out, seeking to find a better way than our way. But all we have to do is have one human being tell us that we ought to do something a different way, and boy, do we get our back up. Because if it's some human being talking to us, we don't want to hear it. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. No. 
because I'm me. <laughs> Whatever that's worth. No, we should be learning something new every day. People use that expression, don't they? You learn something every day. Of course, at my age, I forget two things every day, so I'm falling behind. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If someone tries to teach you and you're unwilling to listen because of spiritual pride, not having true humility, how are you going to grow? We don't think it consciously, but subconsciously we resist growth. We resist change. And especially if it's another human being that tells it, we resist it. Human beings do not like to change. But that's what repentance is. Change. That's all the word means. Change. Be different. Well, that's just the way I am. That's the way I've always done it. That's the way my father did it. Well, that and a dollar will buy you a cup of coffee. There are better ways. This book shows better ways. And we need to be humbled. Now, if we humble ourselves before this word, though, and do what it says in spite of what we always thought, in some cases, people think that we're be, being self-righteous or lying. I'm not lying about the Passover. I truly believe what I've preached. And I hope that you have searched the Scriptures, proved it one way or another, and you really believe what you believe. And you better do what you believe. But we'd all better be checking to see if what we believe is what the Bible actually says about various topics. And we're finding that a lot of things we believe we've been taught, that's not what the book actually says. So let's find out what God says, not what we believed. If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have we tasted that? Have you tasted that God is gracious? I certainly have. I have sinned and come short of the glory of God in my life probably more than once. A lot more than that. And I have tasted the forgiveness and the mercy and the kindness of God in areas that I know forgiveness was given. I've tasted that. Now, what should I be doing? To whom coming as into a living stone, not a dead rock, but a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Remember what happened to Aaron's sons who did not live up to what they had been instructed as priests, and they offered the wrong kind of offering, they were killed. If we do not offer the right kind of offerings as a priesthood of God, we also are going to be killed, the lake of fire. Just that simple. We're a spiritual house. We're a holy priesthood. 
and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. God is serious about this. Now, does that, say, does that tell you why he said, pass your time here in this sojourning in fear? In fear that we won't live up to the holy priesthood that God has called us to. The ministry has often self-described itself as living in a goldfish bowl. You know, everybody sees what you do, and they either approve or disapprove what you do. But you can't hide. Well, we're all a priesthood. We're all under constant scrutiny from God to determine if we are a holy priesthood that is worth preserving forever and ever and whether or not we qualify as those who would rule the world and bring world peace. How much peace is there among us as a congregation? How much peace do you see throughout the congregations of all the churches of God today? Are we yet lacking? Have we, do we know the way of peace? Are we walking the way of peace? Or are there still problems among us? We're here to offer spiritual sacrifices to do good to those who despitefully use us and persecute us and misuse us. That's hard to do, isn't it? We have right here an enemy one of our neighbors, not in the church, but a neighbor, who just resents the fact we're here and is called planning and zoning is trying to stir up all kinds of problems for us just, I suppose, because we're here. I don't know how much of it has to do with religion, not liking us because we're those strange tin can church of God people that keep the Sabbath, Maybe religious persecution, or it may just be the very fact that we're upright walking and are here, blocking her view of the mountains or whatever she likes to look at. Now, it would be easy to have malice and to try to hurt back, but that's not the way we're supposed to live, is it? If I ever find out who that is, for sure, I suppose I need to do something nice to that person. Be kind. Be loving. Help in some way. Do something good for that person. Now, it's not easy to deal with having to go through a bunch of hoops because somebody simply doesn't like me or hates the ground on which I walk, perhaps. It's not easy to be kind and have kindly affection and love towards someone like that. But that's what we're commanded to do, is to bite back our human, natural, carnal reactions and show love. But that's the kind of spiritual sacrifice that is going to be necessary for us to bring peace to the earth as kings and priests. We have seen, and we see on the world scene, Gross injustices done by world leaders. And we're going to see even grosser injustices done in the next few years by world leaders. We're in training to be the leaders of the world. Us. 
We don't have the education. We haven't been to Harvard. We don't have the background. We're not part of the elite ruling class by any means. We're the weak in the base. But God says if we will learn to live by these rules and therefore learn fervent love one for another, that we will then be qualified to rule the world because we have fervent love for others. So if you have fervent love for others and you care really about them, then the things you do are going to be uplifting and building them up as opposed to tearing them down. And then you have the mind and attitude that can be used by God to bring peace to the world. So the spiritual sacrifices we give as a holy priesthood have to be acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should fear each day that we might say the wrong thing that might be hurtful, that might be embarrassing to others. But boy, you know, if we're in the know or think we're in the know, we've got to repeat it because somehow it makes us feel good to think we're in the know. And we're overlooking the fact that we're being hurtful and harmful and embarrassing others by repeating what we might know or think we know about them. Everybody has things in their background, in their life, they would just as soon be forgotten. And God says it is his glory to conceal a matter. But it is our glory to repeat and pass along a matter, isn't it? That's carnality. That is not a qualification for ruling in the world tomorrow. Maybe we need to learn to think a little bit instead of just trying to promote ourselves and lift ourselves up by putting others down. How does it lift you up by stabbing somebody else in the back? doesn't, does it? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It isn't logical. But somehow we feel it puts us above someone else to be in the know or to be able to give the straight story. There are people who have delved into Herbert Armstrong's life to find out just how bad that man was. I could care less. I have not read all those books. I've heard this, that, and everything here and there. I even saw the man make what I thought were mistakes. So what? God used the man, and he brought me, essentially, the truth through the man. And God is his judge. I'm not. Whether he is a part of the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ returns has no bearing on, I mean, what I think about him has no bearing on whether or not God puts him in his kingdom or not. Whether I revere him down to the point that I virtually worship him and hang on every word he might have written or said, which some do, or whether I hate him because of things that he allegedly did or did that can be documented and proved, I have you know, 
What difference does it make? God is his judge. God is my judge. God is your judge. So what good does it mean? I mean, some people are an expert on all of Herbert Armstrong's sins. At least they're self-proclaimed experts. And probably some of the things they would tell you are true. Some are probably not. And who knows which is what. But even if it could all be proved, what difference does it make? God knew the man a whole lot better than I do, you do, or anyone else who is a historian knows. God knows everything the man did. God knows every thought that went through his head. And he's the final judge. So whether I condemn or don't condemn or idolize is neither here nor there to the man's judgment. My judgment is based on my work, as he said in verse 17. And I need to pass the time of my sojourning here in fear because as a human being, I am going to fall short of the glory of God and have often in my life. And so have you. It's not Herbert Armstrong's judgment I'm in fear of. It's mine. And if I love you, to make you aware of your judgment. See, Peter wanted to make them aware of what they were going through and that they ought to fear to fall short of the glory of God. So he wrote them this letter, scattered it all over wherever Israel had gone, to let them know they should be in fear. And it was written for us to read today so that we might live in fear too. The proper fear of God, because he's the one that makes the final judgments. So people can bandy back and forth what this, that, or the other human being did on this earth. <coughs> but it really doesn't matter. God will forgive whom he chooses to forgive. He forgave David, didn't he? He did some pretty horrendous things. Do you think that those stories went all through Israel? About David and his wives and about Uriah and Bathsheba and all that? You bet they did. Boy, they went all over the camp. But it, did it make any difference in the long run where David would wind up with what those people said about him or said about Moses or any of the others? No. God judged David. God forgave a lot of things David did. And as a result, he's going to be king of all Israel in the world tomorrow. The only difference between David and Herbert Armstrong in that sense is we weren't there to observe what David was doing. We can only read about it and read God's judgment, so we accept God's mercy on David. But we are here and we've lived to see what the leaders in the worldwide church of God did so we can do the same thing those people in Israel did about David or Moses. And we think we're in the know. But God is going to make the judgment on all of us the same way he did on Moses and David. So what we say about each other is really, in the long run, nothing. It means nothing. 
except that it may disallow us as kings and priests in the world tomorrow because we have not learned to love fervently and of a pure heart. And we're still playing one-upmanship. You see, an inferiority complex often comes over as highly superior. We try to cover our own inferiority by putting others down. And therefore you say, well, that person sure has a superior attitude. Well, it may be a superior attitude, but it's based on severe inferiority. I know I'm inferior, so I'll act superior. And that's why we put other people down. We all know we're inferior. Aren't we? I'm inferior. I'm certainly inferior to God. I'm not anything like Him. I'm trying to be like Him. I won't say anything like Him. I hope I made a little progress. But I'm still a long, long, long way away. And we all are. But you know what? If this group has anything, I think what it has that might give us an opportunity to improve is that we're willing to admit that we are lacking. Once you admit you're lacking, you at least have a chance to overcome it. But if you say, I'm a Philadelphian and I have need of nothing, we're, we're basically okay here, you don't have a chance to change and overcome. So if we have an advantage, it is that as a group we've admitted we're not what we ought to be. That is the first step toward becoming what you ought to be. Verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. If we believe in his life enough that we're willing to walk as he walked and think as he thought and to bring every thought into the subjection of Jesus Christ, we will not be confounded. We will receive the reward of salvation. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made, the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. We simply cannot stumble at the words of God. Because he lived those words. He was not a hypocrite. He came down here and lived it perfectly as an example to us that we need to live by these words. You've got the, the disobedient who are appointed to death and destruction. But we're not supposed to go there. You and I are not here to be destroyed, are we? We're not here to be destroyed. We're not here to be rejected. We're here for a very important purpose and reason. Now, I could say this to the whole church if the whole church would listen, couldn't I? But they won't. So does it make us exclusive 
in a wrong way if I only preach to those who are willing to listen? You are a chosen generation. That sounds pretty exclusive. Now that's written to the whole church. Will the whole church listen? And does it make us different and exclusive because we're willing? We're a chosen generation. We ought to feel important in that. Doesn't it make you important if God chooses you? That's pretty important. Nothing wrong with that. Just don't be proud and vain and think that it's something that had to do with you. No, it's God's choosing. It's his calling. And he said he'd call the weak in the base. So anything he makes of us isn't because we were great. It's because he is great and he can take that which is nothing and make it something. All glory goes to him. No pride should come to us. Not, nothing wrong with feeling that we're part of a chosen generation, a chosen bunch of people. This generation, this chosen group, will not die out until all these things happen. But we're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. That's pretty exclusive. Royal priesthood? How big is that? How big is the royalty of Europe? They all know each other. They're all cousins and brothers and sisters. Not very big. And God's royal priesthood is not very big either. A holy nation, a redeemed people, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The right word there is redeemed. We use it and say peculiar, thinking that that has some meaning, but it doesn't. We're not peculiar in that sense. We're redeemed. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. We were just individuals, but we weren't a group. We weren't an organization. We weren't a people. He called us out of this world and made us a particular redeemed people, set aside, sanctified for holiness called us out of the darkness of this world. And we don't want to come out of darkness, do we? We want to cling to this world. We want to cling to its ways. They're ways that on some levels can be exciting and fun. But they end up how? In misery and death. which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Our sins can be washed away. Our sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. When we were baptized and repented, and as we die daily and crucify ourselves, which is hard to do, then we are forgiven daily as well. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We have desires, human pulls, that lead toward death. They don't lead toward life. 
And we have to abstain from that because we're strangers and pilgrims. Isn't it easy to do what you want to do? Isn't it easy to give in to the flesh? It's hard to crucify the flesh. It's hard to change your attitudes. It's hard to love people. Not easy. It's hard. Sometimes people aren't very lovable. And we have to love them anyway. Sometimes we're not very lovable. But people have to love us anyway. Very hard to do. But we're strangers and pilgrims here. We don't fit in with this world. We're not supposed to fit in with this world. Our fellowship is not to be with this world. John makes that very clear. First John. Our friends should not be of this world. We're strangers and pilgrims here. We're to set an example before them of godliness. And they won't like that. I can remember a lot of times in my life when I wanted to fit in with people out in the world. So I would talk like them and act like them. Well, what kind of example was that for them? I was just being one of them. Now, if I had not been one of them, they would have thought I was strange. People in the world should look upon you and me as strange. Okay? They really should. We should not try to fit in and be enough like them that they'll like us and accept us because they don't accept God. They don't accept God's Word. They don't accept God's way of life. We have to live that, and then they will think it strange that we don't run to the same excess of riot that they live. And they'll look upon us as weird. If you live godly, the world will look upon you as weird. Okay? Accept that. Weird to the world, but like God. Now, we should be kind. We should be nice to the world, but don't think like they think. Don't do the things they do. Don't act like them. And they'll think you're weird. That's okay. Verse 12, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, and they will think of us as evil. Our neighbors around here think we're evil. That's why we hear that they refer to us as that tin can, Sabbath-keeping, bunch of weird people. We're different from them. We worship on a different day. We have different holy days or holidays. Hopefully we're not acting like them. Hopefully we're acting like God. And they won't like it. Do you like it when somebody shines a light in your face? I had a fellow last night. We were getting in a little late because we had some tire trouble and got caught in, behind an accident and this and that and the other thing that slowed us down. I was trying to beat it here by sundown and couldn't quite manage it. And it wasn't because I left on Friday. I left early Thursday morning thinking we had plenty of time. But sometimes things happen. But I remember I have a big wide mirror on that pickup and some fellow kept driving over to the side and shined that right in my eyes. I didn't like it. It hurt. And he says, we're the light to the world. 
And if we actually live according to God's way, that light will hurt their eyes and they will hate it. Men love darkness rather than evil because their deeds are evil. They're living naturally, carnally, selfishly. And they don't like it when someone doesn't live that way. They won't like us. Having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. That implies that they won't now. They will not like us now if we live godly in Jesus Christ. But when God begins to do these things on this earth, and when the kingdom of God is established, and we're made kings and priests and rulers over the whole earth, then they'll wake up, and they'll love the light. They will have learned that the way people live on this earth today leads to death and destruction. They will have learned it firsthand, and they'll be ready to get away from it. We have trouble today because we don't have vision enough. We have trouble divorcing ourselves from this world, don't we? Now, when God gets done with the great tribulation and the destruction at the end of this age, people are going to be anxious to get away from Satan and man's world. They will have learned firsthand that it's bad. Those who survive will be ready to listen, eager to listen to us. Those who died in it will come up in a second resurrection, and they'll be eager to listen. Say, boy, we were in that society. We know what it was like, and we died in it. We trusted it. We thought the beast had all the answers, and we all worshipped the beast, and we all died. And they will be eager to hear now, we are to be transformed. That means we should be eager to hear. But we're so carnal, so human, that if someone tells us we need to change something, we automatically resist, don't we? That's carnality. That's human pride. We don't want to be told by anybody what to do. Mr. Armstrong often said, and I think truly, the hardest thing for people to do is admit they're wrong. If somebody tells us we're doing something in a way that we shouldn't do it, be some little physical thing. We don't want to hear it. That's carnality speaking. When you get that way and you don't want to listen to somebody and you'll lie or you'll excuse or justify in some form or fashion rather than just say, you're right, that's better. I'll do it that way. Thank you. Thank you. That is a better way. But no, our humanness, our selfishness, our pride says that's the way I've done it. That's the way I'm going to do it. Can't tell me. Someday they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance or institution or government of man. For the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. 
For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We should show a certain respect for the government and even the laws that they make, as long as they do not break the law of God. They were put there. God even sets up the rulers of the world. He puts over the governments what? The weak and the basest of men, says in Daniel. God sets up as leaders of the nations today the basest of men. We have oil men running America today. What do we see going up in price faster than anything else? Duh. But we need to be careful. We're not against the government. It's there. We're for the government of God. But we have to basically keep the laws and the rules of the government of man. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar, or even perhaps that which Caesar thinks is Caesar's. I don't think going the uh, way of the, what's the word, not patriots, but the, the uh, sovereign citizens is the way to go. Because they're trying to get around the government that has been placed here. It is an unrighteous government. It's based on masonry. It's based on people doing the wrong things, even though the law essentially is the old law of England, which is based on the Bible. But they've gotten so far away from it that it means nothing. But we still need to be careful and comply basically with their rules so that we are not branded as, as rebels for the wrong reasons. We'll get branded as rebels for the right reasons soon enough because we will obey God rather than man. Do you think when the beast power begins to hold sway completely over the earth and we say, no, I will obey God, that we will be thought of as rebels? Were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought of as rebels? They put God's government and their lives ahead of man's government. So there comes a time that we are to obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. But so long as we can, we should essentially keep their rules. If we're branded as rebels, it should be for the right reasons, not for the wrong. Verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. His law is higher, but we should not think of ourselves so highly that we think we're free to impugn all of their rules. Don't use it as a cloak to do your own thing and be malicious. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the jerks. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, and we will sometimes suffer wrongfully. But what should our attitude be? Didn't Jesus Christ suffer wrongfully? He didn't do any of those things. Himself, we did them, and he was suffering for us, Because of sin. Yes, he suffered for sin. In that sense, he was not suffering wrongfully, but it wasn't his sin, it was ours. 
There's some instruction here we really need to hear. Verse 20, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? I mean, if we have the fault and somebody calls us on it, what reward is there for taking that patiently? It's true. They got us. We were wrong. But even when we're wrong, we tend to resist, don't we? We'll find some way to justify. We'll find some way to try to prove it wrong. We'll defend ourselves to the nth degree. Instead of just saying, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. So hard to say that, isn't it? So hard to do. You got me that time. Not that anyone should be trying to get you, but sometimes they'll point out something that you're doing wrong. Ought to be done differently. For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. We have an awful time admitting it when we actually are wrong. And then when someone falsely accuses us, we really get indignant. He says, take both patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. He is our ultimate example. He did nothing wrong. He answered not a word. Didn't defend himself in any way. We would have a great leap forward in true spirituality if we would simply quit defending ourselves and admit it when someone gets on us and say, well, you're right, or you could be right, or even if they're absolutely wrong, to take it patiently instead of getting our back up. But we do. How much different would it be? You know, even with your children, you, you can see that carnal nature there. You can say, did you do this? And you just watch their little lies. They're trying to find a way to get out of it. They'll lie. They'll, just, they'll look you right in the eye and lie. I didn't do that. I mean, and it's right there beside them. <laughs> no one else could have done it. But the dog did it, or the cat did it, or little brother or little sister did it. That human nature is so powerful that we'll try to find a way not to take the blame for whatever it is we might have done. And if we didn't do it, we certainly will get self-righteous. What a difference it would make it if our, in our relationships if we could simply say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. We don't like to apologize. I'm sorry is very, very hard for a lot of people to say. As we come to the Passover season, we need to become more like Jesus Christ and be willing to show and to admit we're wrong about something or that there might be a better way. It shows up in little ways, but it's a major 
thing that needs to be changed. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He just said, in his own heart and mind, he said, I'll leave it up to God. But we're very quick to say, well, God is my judge, you're not. See, we're not willing to admit that we might be wrong, but we'll call on God as our judge. We're not willing to listen to men. That means we're not humble. That means we're full of spiritual pride and vanity and human pride and vanity. And there is nothing to be proud about. We need to get the word pride completely out of our minds, our lips, and our lives. You have nothing to be proud about. The country you came from, did you make it? The state you came from, did you make it? The family you came from, did you have anything to do with it? The family name, is it something you built? The family fortune, is it something you built? No, we have nothing to be proud about. Even the Father, who made it all, said of Jesus Christ, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Didn't say I'm proud of you, Son. We have nothing to be proud about. When we find proud flesh on our toe, we cut it off. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were his sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And I think now that we understand the Passover better, as we come near that time this year, we are returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls in a way that is very important. We're not going to demean his sacrifice this year. We're going to concentrate on what he went through. And in that sense, we're going to live it vicariously and go through it with him again as he did it. And I think that is a very important thing for us to do. And in so doing, humble ourselves, realizing that of all the sins that he could have been accused of, the guilt was laid on him. For everything that you and I have ever done was laid on him. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son for us, for the whole world. And the whole world eventually is going to receive salvation with the exception of a few because there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some won't ever repent and humble themselves. We have a chance, and we have the Passover, and we have Jesus Christ who came and died for us and was resurrected that we might live again and live forever if we will be as he was. How much better would all our relationships be if we simply followed this example given right here and humbly being willing to take on whatever we are accused of not defend ourselves, not justify ourselves, not try to explain how we're not guilty, 
because of human nature and pride and vanity and ego and selfishness, all those things. Those are the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Against those things there is no law. The law is designed to get us to love one another with a pure heart fervently. And if we can do that, we're truly the sons of God. The justifying of self, the defending of self, the raising up of self by the putting down of others has to stop. Because Christ put himself down and in that sense was willing to put them above himself, to give everything he had for everyone else. We're not willing to do that carnally. We're willing to put everyone down that we might look good to ourselves. And that has to change. That's why we have to go through many temptations, trials, and troubles. is because we simply do not want to give up self. It's hard to do. But he did it. And he set the example that we should follow in his steps. So as this season gets closer and closer, let's work on true humility because that was one of the major things that Jesus Christ showed in not justifying himself when he was accused of all our sins. He was willing to just take it patiently. And look what he has today, sitting at the throne of God and preparing to come back and marry his bride and rule the world in peace. And we can be a part of that if we will truly humble ourselves as he humbled himself and walk in his steps and be as he was.